The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Y'all doing all right this morning? Are you sure? Hey, don't you love when these guys lead us in worship? Man, it is such a... uh, I, I love listening. If we can get a little more light on stage, that would be great. I love listening to these guys from backstage because what's really, really cool is listening to you guys sing with them, and uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing, and so I'm glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Story City, and if this is your first time, we want to say welcome. We're honored that you would spend a little bit of time with us this morning. We're in week two of a series called The Storytelling God. And this series is a collection of sermons that look at the stories that Jesus told and what those stories can tell us about life, humanity, God, the future. And so this morning, we're going to journey to another parable that Jesus told. And I want to give you a heads up this morning. This is not an easy parable to preach, all right? And it will only get awkward if you stand up and leave, okay? If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 16, um, starting in verse 19, it's a story of the rich man and Lazarus this morning. Um, We are a church, I hope, if you've been around for a while, you've been able to determine this, that we are a church that is a good news church. We're not a give them hell kind of a church. Um, We're not preaching down at people every week. We believe your story matters. We believe your story is welcome here. We are a good news, grace-filled church. Now, let me tell you, that does not exclude us from teaching on difficult things that Jesus taught, okay? So this morning, I'm just giving you fair warning, um, this is a difficult passage. No pastor in America, in Africa, nowhere on the planet enjoys teaching on the idea of hell after this earth, all right? Now, I, I want to respectfully do that this morning. I have no funny illustration to open up the scripture, to open up the text with, but let me just address a few things, okay? Because I, if you're thinking this pastor has lost his ever-loving mind teaching on hell to a group of Angelinos, I promise you I have not, okay? Uh, but let me address a few things before we jump into it, because I'm not unaware of what the culture and, uh, sees and how we see this idea of hell. In fact, some of you may still have some of these same thoughts. And by the way, if that's your story and that's your journey and that's how you come here, let me tell you, we're glad you're here. Um, And another reason why we don't just teach on things that are easy and palatable and things that you've always known or believed about the church, or if you just want us to teach on love and grace, let me just say to you this morning, um, I'm aware, even though I failed physics, that when there is friction, friction creates movement. And some of us need movement this morning, and this may cause some friction in your life as to what you believe or what you want to believe about God. I'm fully aware of that. I placed that on the banquet table before us, and I say to you, let's just live in this arena of friction for just a few minutes as we explore the story that Jesus told about heaven and earth and life after earth, okay? So these are some of the thoughts that our culture would express about hell. They're not um, unknown to you, and maybe you have some of these same thoughts. This may be a, a saying that you have, have, uh, have pitched. This may be something you have expressed. I can't believe in a God who sends people to suffer eternally. What kind of loving God is filled with wrath? I received that this morning. Maybe you have this thought, or you know, um, our culture would say something like, my God is too loving to pour out infinite suffering on anyone for sin. Maybe you think, uh, I don't think God would send a person who lives a good life to hell 
just for holding the wrong belief, okay? I'm fully aware of what our culture believes about the afterlife concerning heaven and hell. And I don't want us to be unaware of that, and I don't want us to act like we don't, um, none of us in this room believe that. But let me just say out front, and then we're going to jump right into the passage this morning. If we take the the story of heaven and hell from Luke chapter 16, which, by the way, this is not the only time Jesus talked about heaven and hell. It's not the only time Scripture addresses those two things. Oftentimes, heaven and hell is juxtaposed against each other. And so if we're going to take the idea of heaven and believe that it is realer than real, we cannot just discard hell as being simply a myth. We just can't do it. If we do so, then we have an issue of authority. If we just take this passage that Jesus, the story that Jesus teaches on, then we have an issue of authority in that we can't just decide what parts of scripture we want to believe and we don't want to believe. It's either true or it's not true. And I know that's another difficult reality for many of us in our postmodern secular culture. But if we just want to throw out this story, then we have an issue of authority. And also, if we want to try to reinterpret this parable that Jesus tells here as to something a little more palatable. Trust me, I did not wake up this morning excited to teach the church on hell. And I don't say that with a smile on my face or as a joke for you this morning. But if, if I decided to, to, to treat this passage as something a little more palatable and, and twist and turn, then not, I don't have an issue of authority. I have an issue of interpretation, and it's just hot, hard to interpret what we're about to read, okay? So let's do this. Um, drop your dukes for just for a moment, okay? Drop your dukes just for a moment. Lean in, and I hope, I, wanna, I hope to challenge you in a few ways in how you may traditionally see hell. I don't want to not affirm that, but I want to help you in a few other ways that might also help you understand why this is is a reality. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, this is a parable that Jesus is telling. And by the way, there are few stories that are more disturbing than the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And this is the only parable that Jesus tells out of 38 parables where Jesus specific, specifically uses proper names. He talks about Lazarus. He talks about Abraham. Every other parable that Jesus tells does not have a proper name. And so there's a, we could dive into that, but obviously this is very personal to Jesus, okay? Um, and this is also the only place where hell is described as a place of, of suffering and and it gives us a description of a person actually suffering in hell. We see hell all throughout Scripture, but this is the only place where we actually give a real description of someone there, okay? Now, take a deep breath. <laughs> Look at your neighbor and say, it's going to be all right, okay? Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, there's three contrasts that I see in this parable. And this is what strikes me, and this is where I want to land today, okay? Luke 16, verse 19 through 21. Now, there was a rich man... And he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. We, we have the first man who's described. He just happens to be a rich man. The second man's going to be a poor man. It's just the story that we have. It's not because he was rich. It's not because he was poor. It's just the story that we have. He dressed in purple and fine linen. Probably a dude that bagged his clothes from Rodeo Drive. This is a guy that was the wealthy of the wealthiest. He was the top of the top. Um, this may help you. He was the Donald Trump of wealth, okay? That may help you think about hell a little more palatably, all right? He joyously lived in splendor every day, okay? Verse 20, and a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate. It gives us this idea that his health was so poor that he was helpless. He had to be ushered to this place where he was currently laying, okay? And it says he was covered with sores. Verse 21, and he longed to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. 
And besides, even the dogs were coming to lick his sores. Now, there weren't house dogs in this day. We didn't have house pets as dogs in this day. These were scavenger dogs. It gives us this idea that this man was on the brink of death. That's how desperate his situation was. Um, the parable does not condemn the rich man for being rich, okay? Let's, let's clear some, some thoughts that we may and some perceptions we may have here. The, the parable does not condemn the rich man for being rich. It doesn't condemn, it doesn't praise the poor man for being poor. It's simply the contrast that we have that Jesus is about to set up to make the point that he wants to share. And the distinction that Jesus is making here, the distinction that Jesus is making here between these two men it's a contrast of their experience on earth, okay? And the distinction that Jesus wants to make here is that the man who was rich in wealth was poor spiritually. And the man who was poor in wealth was rich in spiritually. spiritually. So we have a rich man who had everything in life, yet he was poor spiritually. We have a poor man who had nothing in life, yet he was rich spiritually, okay? And so from God's perspective, these are just two men, one who is possessed by God in this life and one who possesses everything else in life, okay? Now, Scripture doesn't condemn um, people who have great wealth, but Scripture very clearly talks about things that possess us other than God clearly being sin. Now, let me define sin for you because I think it's important in understanding the idea of hell. Sin is not just breaking the rules, okay? Look at me real quick. It's not just that you broke a rule. Sin is defined as making something or someone other than God as supremely valuable and worthy in your life, okay? Um, it's the idea that you have a choice every day in life and the choices that you make have the potential to drive us to what I think sin is described as. It has the potential when we make wrong choices to drive us to slavery, okay? That's very important in understanding the idea of sin. So good things that the rich man had became little g-gods, and have the potential to drive us, to enslave us mentally and spiritually, even to hell if we allow them. Now listen to me. Even La La Land understands this idea of choices that can drive us to insanity. You remember Mia as she's singing in La La Land? And here's to the fools who dream, crazy as they may seem. Here's to the hearts that break. Here's to the mess that we make, right? Like we even understand this in culture. We have choices every single day, and Scripture defines those choices that are more worthy and supremely valuable than God. He describes them as sin. Now, can I say this to you? We are a culture that supremely values being a choice worshiper. Like, like we love the idea and the ability to choose. Can I say to you this morning that slavery is the choice worshiper's horror? The idea that I could choose something that could drive me to a place of madness, drive me to a place that displeases God is horror for our minds. Because we like to think we make good choices because we are good people and our good choices drive us to health, wealth, and happiness. And scripture defines sin. In Romans chapter 1 verse 25, it tells us that we're built for God. 
to worship him ultimately and supremely. But instead, when we work, when we achieve, when we put other things in the place of God, here's what it does. It drives us to guilt when we don't attain them. It drives us to fear when somebody threatens them. It drives us to anger when somebody blocks those things from us. It drives us to be driven because we have to have them. And so fear and anger and guilt and drivenness, listen to me, are like the fires of hell that destroy us. Okay? Sin is worshiping anything but Jesus, and the wages of sin is slavery. We struggle with this idea of God thinking up these punishments to inflict on disobedient people. But when we see hell as, as slavery, hell as freely chosen, it becomes a little more comprehensible because we have, have chosen it. So, so be honest with yourself this morning. You, you, you know these things that can drive us to those places. The reality is when we talk about hell this morning, um, and by the way, I fully understand that we can have this idea that there's a hell on earth, but this is not the context of the passage here. It's this idea when we see their, the, 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 the contrast in their life on earth, a poor man who is rich spiritually, a rich man who is poor spiritually. We had this idea that hell is just really, really easy. What do you have to do to get hell? You really have to do nothing. You have to do nothing, just like the rich man. By the way, um, mind your own business, love yourself a lot. That's easy to do. Hell is so easy. It's easy for anyone to do, anyone to achieve, easy for anyone to be self-involved, all the way to destruction. Now, here's the thing. The people listening to Jesus during this day, the people listening to Jesus talking about the rich man who had everything, the poor man who was on the brink of death, would interpret these two men at this point in the passage as the rich man receiving blessings for being obedient. They would interpret the poor man who is on the brink of death and suffering as a result of sin. So they would see the rich man as being blessed by God. They would see the poor man who's struggling as, as a, his situation and scenario is a result of his sin. Now Jesus, and only how he can do it, turns the tale here turns the tide here, and he flips their understanding of what's actually going on. And so he dumbfounds the people when he continues the story, and he has another contrast. We have their contrast in life. Now Jesus is about to tell us about a contrast in their experience in death. Verse 22, now the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died, and he was buried. It doesn't tell us how the rich man was buried, but we can understand probably there was a lot of pomp and circumstance. Um, there were a lot of people. There was a lot of fanfare. He may have even been buried with some of his earthly goods. And verse 23 says, now here's the contrast that the people listening to Jesus would have been dumbfounded because they would have seen the rich man as being blessed, the poor man who is struggling as a result of his sin. Now this is what Jesus says. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, meaning the rich man. And being in torment, he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Verse 24, and he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that now this is Abraham who's receiving these two, who's receiving, I'm sorry, Lazarus in the heaven. There's this, there's, there's this awareness that, that the man who is now in torment in hell has this awareness that there is a difference in where he is and where Lazarus is. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. 
And by the way, let's not misinterpret that. Like if you got a bad lot in life, God's going to reward that and double it over in heaven. Or like if you got it really good in life, God's going to double down and like you get the low end of the totem pole in heaven. That's not how this is happening. But now Lazarus is being comforted here, verse 25, and you're in agony, verse 26. And besides this, now listen to this, this is terrifying. Between us and you, there is a great chasm that's fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able. This is Abraham looking at the rich man and saying, you understand there's an awareness of where you are and where we are, and there is an eternality about where you are and where we are, and there is an impossibility for you to go from one to the other. So that those who wish to come from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Now listen, it's very easy to read the parable of Jesus here in Luke chapter 16 and just say it's just a parable, right? They're just symbols, but parables like symbols always correspond to things. And things are usually bigger and more real than their example. So let me say this real quick, okay? When Jesus says torment and agony, he cannot be talking about an unconscious world. When Jesus, um, it, it also cannot mean that, that everyone goes to heaven here. Um, I, I want to believe the best about people who pass from this life to the earth. And I've been in a lot of funerals, as you have, where people talk about he's now in heaven, heaven's received an angel. Listen, we don't just assume a universality where everybody dies and goes to heaven. Remember, our choices are our sin, and when we choose not God but something else, why is it that we would think we would have any eternity filled with God when we never wanted to choose him in the first place? So when Jesus talks about torment and agony, it can't mean an unconscious world. It also can't mean that everybody goes to heaven. And listen to this. It cannot mean hell on earth. It can't mean hell on earth. Why? Because that's not the context here. If the context was hell on earth, it would be talking about their life and what they experienced in life on earth. They're taught, but Jesus is talking about very clearly a post-mortem experience. It cannot mean hell on earth. The reality that we have to come to grips with if we're going to read scripture with all honesty and authenticity. I'm not unaware that there are pastors, there are theologians, there are men who write books who would say to us that hell is not a reality. I, with all of my heart, I don't like the idea of literal hell. I do not. I'm a pastor. I don't like that idea. In my compassion and your compassion, we would like to wipe away that idea. But in order to do so, we literally have to begin to rip pages out of our book and, and manipulate this theological interpretation that's really not there. Nobody likes the idea of a literal hell. So let me try to shift your thinking just for a moment, okay? Now, if you're a solid, conservative, believing Christian, don't, you don't have to be worried here. I'm not going to say something that's weird. Listen to me. Here, let me set the stage for just a moment. A God who is unconcerned about justice cannot be a loving God. A God who is unconcerned about justice cannot be a loving God. Let me illustrate this for you just for a moment. I have a seven-year-old son. His name is Deacon. I love him with all of my heart. 
There are days when Deacon gets in trouble and I hate the worst of my son, yet I still love my son, okay? And I was trying to think of an illustration to tell you about something he did bad, yet I still love him. But let me just roll this out, okay? Let me just, let me just give you a scenario. Suppose my son grows up and he does something evil and, and, and unthinkable, and he is, uh, and it's known, it was called on video, um, there are eyewitnesses, it is indisputable that my son did something evil and horrible to somebody else. And it landed him in a place where he's sitting on trial, and in that trial, um, the sentence of death is about to be passed down to my son, Okay. Now, in that moment, as a father sitting in a courtroom who knows that his son has committed a crime that is evil and unspeakable and horrible, I have compassion and love for my son. But at the same time, if I was genuine and honest, I would have to be also a father who believed that justice rightly needed to be served. Now, I know a father and a son scenario right now today. I've been involved with the situation where the son did something that was undeniable. It was unquestionable. He was guilty. And that father to this day is defending his son and trying to um, relieve his son from justice being served. Now, on the outside looking in, okay, when you see a scenario like that, on one hand, if you are at all compassionate, you're like, I, I don't wish that justice on anyone. But on the outside looking in, when you see a father who's standing in the way of justice being served, there's a part of us that says, that's not right. And so, as my son is on trial and the judge convenes the jury back into the courtroom, Deacon stands up and the head juror is about to read the sentence of death for my son. Everybody in the courtroom knows this is the penalty that's going to be handed down. In fact, Deacon admitted that he did it. And right before the head juror reads the sentence of death, I stand up in the back and I say, Judge, if you would allow me to speak for just a moment. My son committed a crime, and we all know it, and I'm not denying it, and he deserves to be punished for it. Justice has to be served because my son committed this crime. I don't deny it, and I'm not trying to get out of it. But judge, if you would allow me, in the place of my son, if you would allow him to go free and allow me to step into the place of judgment and sentencing, I want to take his place. Now, I, that's a very unlikely scenario. I realize it. But just imagine if a loving father who at the same time has the ability to hate and agonize over the, over the sinful things of my own son's life, which, by the way, I could tell you story after story of him hurting his daughter. I mean, his daughter, I hope not. Hurting his <laughs> sister, being rude to his mother. It always happens when I go out of town. I love my son, but there's a part of me where justice has to be served. <laughs> and we believe in justice in our house. But if a loving earthly father still feels the same way about his son, how much more a morally perfect God feels about the creation that he made? A God who is unconcerned about justice cannot be a loving God. Now, there's this story in John chapter 11 where Jesus finds out that one of his best friends, who happens, by the way, to be named Lazarus, he finds out that Lazarus has died. 
We don't know if this is the same Lazarus, if this is when Jesus is telling the story in Luke chapter 16, if he has Lazarus in mind. But we know in John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. He is good friends with Jesus. Jesus is standing over the tomb of Lazarus. And the scripture tells us in John 11 that Jesus is so overwhelmed by this scenario. It says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept because he sees what death has done to us. He is looking at the reality of the death sentence that has been placed on humanity because of sin. If you carry out theologically the idea of what sin has done to humanity all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we understand that death is the result of sin entering the world. And Jesus is watching it through the eyes of of a man who has just died, his best friend. And the scripture says he wept. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says he not only wept, but he determined that in his ability, in his sovereignty, in his love and grace, Jesus decided to make a resolution for the punishment of sin. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us us. Scripture also says that post-death, when Jesus was laid in the grave like all of us will be, the difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. The Scripture tells us that Jesus descended into Hades, the city of death, and what happened in Hades and the city of death was that Jesus ripped the hinges from the gates of hell so that mankind could be ransomed from the penalty of sin. And that's what Jesus did for humanity. Sin has been crushed. Death has been overcome. Hell has been defeated. And so when we think of hell, we just don't think of of just this God's cranky explosion of anger. If you're a person who explodes in anger, or you're the recipient of someone in your life who explodes with anger, you may equate the wrath of God, the justice of God, the punishment of God with the cranky explosion of anger from somebody that you know or who you are, but God's punishment is not a cranky explosion. It is a calculated, controlled, conceived moment where God is considering his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the heart of humanity and the race that he loves with all of his being. When you think of hell this morning, I just don't want you to think of a place of a punishment by a cruel God. Listen to me. Listen to me. Hell is the extreme measure to which God would go to prove his love for you. And you consider that? Like, like, like you may think, well, well God's perfect and, and, and God would not experience hell. That's not the testimony of Scripture. God himself, veiled in flesh, experienced every terror and every torment and every bit of agony in hell himself. And he did that for all of humanity. It speaks to the measure that Jesus was willing to go and to endure to love us. Don't just think of hell as how angry God is at you. Hell has as much to do with how much Jesus was willing to weep and to suffer on your behalf. Christ is the hell-conquering sin defeating king who himself descended into hell on your behalf to suffer our punishment. Listen to me, listen to me, because he loves you that much. The contrast in their experience in life, then we have the contrast in their experience in death. Now this is the last thing and then I'm done. This is the contrast that 
that speaks the most deeply to me. Luke chapter 16, verse 27 says, and he said, this is the rich man, then I beg you, he's talking to Abraham, father, that you send him to my father's house, meaning Lazarus. I beg you that you send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. What's Abraham saying here? Abraham is about to defeat this idea that, that, that the rich man's brothers needed some sort of sign, some sort of miraculous sky-opening experience in order to turn their eyes to Jesus. Abraham is saying to the rich man that they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scripture. They have the record. They have the testimony of scripture. And if they won't believe the testimony of scripture, they're not going to believe a sky-rending experience that will change their mind. Then he goes on to say, but no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, but he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. The contrast here at the end of this passage, one, you have the contrast of their experience in life. You have their contrast of their experience in death. This is the one that's the most dreadful to me when I think of hell. It's the contrast of the reality of their hopes. The contrast of the reality of their hopes. Think about this just for a moment. Death had to be the rudest awakening for the rich men, the, the awakening of all awakening because it exposed his value systems. It exposed everything he valued. It introduced him to thoughts that he never believed he would have. We can assume that the rich man never once in his life looked up to heaven. Now, he was probably Jewish. He probably went to the synagogue. He probably prayed, recited prayers. He probably did ritual things, but never in his life had the rich man had a moment of heart-rendering, honest-to-God, genuine prayer. Yet in the moments after life, he prayed. Just imagine in this moment. Imagine that man's life before death. He probably lived by the mantra. There is no heaven except for the heaven I create for myself right here. And there is no hell except for what I experience here on this earth. Listen to me. That all changed in an instant if we read this scripture rightly. And now his understanding of heaven and hell has reversed in a moment. A man who never had a thought of heaven and hell. Never even considered it. His things, his stuff, his gods, little g. Driven him to the point of insanity. In his life, in his life, he had nothing but hopefulness for what he could create or what he could avoid. And it was all based in himself. A life lived without God. <laughs> so he also died without God and had none of him in the life beyond. Listen to this. He not only lost God, he lost God forever. If you have a Catholic background, we have no basis in the scriptures for thinking that after death, we have a moment where we can come back to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. He not only lost God, but he lost God forever. He lost the things that he had, food, clothes, housing. He only had suffering. Death is the great equalizer, though. 
Lazarus had God. And in the life to come, he had more of him. And God did not disappoint. The true riches of Lazarus were only enhanced in the life to come. The true poverty of the rich man was intensified. Lazarus knew God in this life and God did not disappoint him afterwards. Look at me real quick. That's a reversal of hopes. That's a reversal of hopes. The rich man had nothing but hopefulness in this life for what he could create and what he could avoid. Yet, the reversal of hopes after death is that in death, the rich man's hopefulness, listen to me, turned to hopelessness. Now, that is, that's what makes hell so terrifying. And listen to this, and heaven's such a blessing. It's not just that hell is a place of suffering, though it is. It, it's the fact that the things in which you put your hope in on earth, other than God, become the source of devastating hopelessness after life. That's what makes hell so terrifying. Reversal of hope. The, the desperation in this life to find hope and meaning is realized in even greater desperation in life after death. So the reality this morning is that hell is the inevitable end to what you're searching for if you don't find Christ. It's the inevitable end to what you're looking for. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, said, hell is the freely chosen eternal skid row of the universe. And to establish this concretely, we see in this passage that after death, there is no possibility for change. It's a devastating reality. Um, I, I don't in, didn't intend to preach this morning to stir your emotions, to manipulate you, to insert any sort of fear-mongering about life after death. That's not my hope this morning. My hope is to teach on the reality of life after death because all of us have the moment where we must decide. Can you imagine just for a moment? I don't know if anyone has ever said this to you. By the way, the fact that you're in church this morning says something about the journey that you're on. And so it may not be you this morning. It may be somebody outside of this room or it could be you. Do you imagine if you just... If you lived a life where you had nothing to do with God, did not want God, it's not that you were antagonistic, it's not that you wrote blog posts, it's not that you marched against God, it could just simply be the fact that you were, you were, you were apathetic towards the things of God. Can you imagine, at what point in your mind, philosophically, logically, does it register that if you wanted nothing of God in this life, in the next life, you should have nothing but God? That doesn't make sense. Like heaven isn't reserved for those people who did not want God in this life. Heaven is reserved for the people who understood the true riches of being rich spiritually in this life and who had God. And the reality, the reality this morning is that in heaven, the pleasure of the saints increases forever. In heaven, the pleasure of the saints increases forever. The choice that we all get to make. Hell is a terrible idea and thought. Jesus this morning, I hope, is speaking to us to say, Jesus is like us in that he did die. He was unlike us in that he came from the grave. 
And when he went into Hades, the city of death, he ripped the hinges from the gates of hell. And now because of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he makes it possible that hell is not a reality for anyone who would turn to Jesus. Scripture says that we would repent and turn to Jesus. Repentance is not just a, it's not just a change of how you think, it's a change of how you walk. And so 180, you say, I don't like that my life would be changed if I came to Christ. I would say you're probably not ready for Jesus in this moment. If the Spirit of God has begun to regenerate your heart such that you understand that life without Jesus is worse than life with Jesus, maybe God is beginning to turn your heart to the fact that you need to turn your eyes and have a heart-rendering, honest-to-God, genuine moment where you say, Jesus, I realize who I am. In my sin, I've chosen something other than you. And the result of that is death. But thank you, Jesus, you went to hell, the city of death, and you ripped the hinges from the gates of hell so that I could experience freedom and unending pleasure that continues forever with you in heaven. Should bow your head, close your eyes, we're done. I don't know how you came this morning. I don't know what your story is spiritually. I don't know the journey that you're on. But I'm convinced this morning that the Spirit of God would desire to speak to you and open your eyes spiritually to see the beauty of Jesus, what he's done for you, and what he accomplished in experiencing hell himself. The beauty of the resurrection that we'll celebrate here at Easter makes possible the restoration of our soul to our body in unending pleasure with Jesus in heaven. This morning, I pray that if you've never given your life to Jesus, this is the moment you would do it. It's a watershed moment, a yes or no moment, not an on-the-fence moment. The Spirit of God has spoken so deeply to you that you understand that in your choice this morning, you decide whether you will have Jesus or whether you will not have Jesus, whether he will change you from the inside out or whether he will not. I pray that you would make the choice and the decision this morning that by the Spirit of God leading you, that you would give your life to Jesus. You would turn your life to him. There's nothing magical or mystical about how that happens. We don't stand you on a stage, make you say anything you don't want to say. We simply lead you to the point where you have an honest, authentic conversation with God. God, I know who I am. I know you created me. You're responsible for me. You love me. But God, I know there's a problem between you and I called sin. But God, the result of sin, if it's never dealt with, is death, both in this life and the next. But God, in your wonderful, unmistakable, glorious love for us, you died on the cross and demonstrated your love for us. That if we would confess with our mouth that Jesus Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised you from the dead, we can be saved. And that if we confess that, Jesus gives us the right to become a child of God. If that's your desire this morning, I would love to know who you are. Come down front this morning and see one of our pastors. Stop by the connect table and fill out a card that says, I trusted Jesus with my life. We want to help you begin this journey with Jesus this morning. God, we love you. Thank you for a day where we open up the scriptures, God. We can be a church of grace. We can be a church that speaks the hard things, God. God, we can be a church that says there is friction in what we currently believe, but fully trusting in the Holy Spirit of God to take us to the place of truth, to see you for who you are, for how beautiful you are, for how glorious you are, for what you have done for us and in us and through us by your death on the cross, release sin, overcoming sin and death and hell because of the grave. Jesus, we trust in you and you are sweet and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.